1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we speak with a boulderite who earned gold at the Olympics this week for her home country of Bermuda.
2: Yes, we're from a small island, but that doesn't mean it's not possible to
3: compete on the world stage. Plus, ahead of Colorado Day this weekend, we talk centennial state history with our state's new historian.
1: And with private sector vaccine mandates already in motion here in the state, we explore the recent changes the Delta variant is spurring and where the state of Colorado fits into it all.
3: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
1: And I'm Erin O'Toole. This week, dozens of health organizations from the American Medical Association to the American Nurses Association announced support for requiring health care workers to get the COVID-19 vaccine.
3: And some employers are doing just that with vaccine mandates. Workers who refuse them could be fired. And these mandates have already come to Colorado. KUNC's Michael De joins us now. Hey, Michael. Hi, Henry. Just when a few things here and there uh, seem to be returning back to the way they were before the pandemic, health officials are once again sounding the alarms. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention this week now says that people in areas that have high coronavirus transmission should return to wearing masks in public and some situations indoors. What's behind all this?
0: Well, two things. First, there is the latest incarnation of the virus, the highly contagious Delta variant, which is circulating around the country and hitting here in Colorado. And second, a large number of people who are unvaccinated, including many healthcare workers. Now, Uh, Colorado's rate of vaccination is better than most states um, that it shares borders with. About 60% of residents have had at least their first dose. That's according to the Mayo Clinic's vaccine tracker. But most other states are hovering around 50%. Those are the ones we border with. And, uh, you know, Wyoming to our north, just 41%. The reason this is a concern is that more than nine out of 10 coronavirus hospital are people who are not vaccinated. That's a trend that includes Colorado.
3: And because of all of this, we are starting to see these vaccine mandates here in our state. Which organizations in Colorado are requiring them?
0: Earlier this week, the Department of Veterans Affairs became the first federal agency to implement a mandate for all frontline health workers. The VA cited several deaths of unvaccinated employees linked to the Delta variant. Doctors, nurses, dentists, and others who see patients must get their vaccines in the next eight weeks, including VA clinics from Aurora to Grand Junction and all the facilities in between. Also, Uh, Health workers at four Banner Health hospitals in Greeley, Fort Collins, and the Eastern Plains have until November 1st to get vaccinated as, quote, a condition of their employment. I should add uh, that this is an emerging trend. There may be more mandates coming. For instance, the Biden administration may expand mandates to other federal agencies. And companies are doing it too, like United Airlines, which has a flight training center in Denver. It's requiring COVID vaccines for new employees. Well, you briefly mentioned there the
3: potential for federal agencies
0: to have mandates. Let's
3: stick in the public sector for a second. New York and California have implemented mandates for government employees and those that refuse must get tested weekly. Any chance something like that might happen in Colorado?
0: I asked the governor's office that question and I got a statement back from a spokesperson that said, quote, the state is working very hard to educate Coloradans on how safe and effective the vaccine is. And it added that the vaccine is free to those who want it. And it touted the latest round of initiatives, including those Walmart gift cards you may have heard about. Hmm, So
3: that sounds like a no.
0: Yeah, at least for now. Uh, however, I found some initial support for some kind of state mandate from Doug Farmer. He's the president and CEO of the Colorado Healthcare Association, which represents the nursing home and assisted living industry. He told me he thinks his board of directors would be open to the idea. It's not targeted at one sector or another of the, of the healthcare profession. It, it's a philosophical statement that if you are going to be a healthcare professional, then you must be vaccinated for the protection of the, you know, of the public health. Um, then I, I don't think that would be anything that our membership would be opposed to. His concern is that if a mandate focused on one sector of healthcare, like his, uh, workers who refuse to be vaccinated could quit and move to sectors that don't require vaccination and you know there are a lot of unvaccinated health workers for instance about 30 percent of nursing home workers don't want to be vaccinated i asked farmer why and he said he's not sure but he's heard a few things
3: people that offer it up seem to say things
0: like you know i don't trust the science uh it was rushed um i don't trust the government Now, it's true that some people have had adverse reactions to the vaccine. The CDC is tracking those, and its conclusion is that severe reactions are extremely rare. And that the vaccines are overwhelmingly safe and any risks associated with it outweigh being unvaccinated and getting COVID. Uh, To give a quick example, anaphylaxis, a really severe allergic reaction, has occurred in two to five people per one million who get the vaccine. And that can be treated on the spot, which is why nurses ask people to stick around after they get a shot. So in all of this, Michael, what else is the state doing in general in response
3: to the Delta variant?
0: The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment told me what the governor's office did, that vaccines are safe, effective and available and they're pushing education. But. They're also tweaking policy in places like for nursing homes. As I've reported before, nursing homes have been especially hard hit throughout the pandemic. Just before vaccination efforts started, about 40% of COVID deaths happened in them. That's that's tracking that I did for KUNC. Uh, public health officials have a new guidance for workers that are not vaccinated. It came out at the end of last week. These workers must now undergo regular rapid testing. And here's something that could hit hard for everyone. For any facility that gets just one case of COVID, visitors will be shut out.
3: Okay, well, UNC's investigative reporter, Michael Deuana,
0: thanks. You're welcome.
1: And a quick note, on Wednesday afternoon, two more hospital systems announced their own COVID-19 vaccine mandates, UC Health and Denver Health. To stay on top of things as more mandates are announced, just head over to our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
3: It's been an exciting week at the Olympics so far. New competitions in sports not yet seen before in the Olympics, relatively unknown Olympians overcoming their competition, and in some cases, countries taking home their first gold medals.
1: This week, Haidaland Diaz won gold in weightlifting, the first gold medal for the Philippines in Olympic history. And the island nation of Bermuda, which has a population about the size of Broomfield or Grand Junction, celebrated its first gold medal this week when Flora Duffy took first place in the Women's Olympic Triathlon. Flora was born and raised in Bermuda, but she is also a Coloradan. She attended the University of Colorado Boulder and continues to live and train in the state for six months out of the year. And she joins us now from Tokyo to talk about her Olympic journey. Flora, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, yeah. Thank you for having me. First of all, I can't imagine how it must feel to not only have won an Olympic gold medal, but to bring home your country's first ever gold medal. What is this moment like for you?
2: It's definitely a pretty surreal moment. I don't think it's quite sunk in yet, but I mean, leading up to the race, I definitely knew that I had sort of some of the pressure of expectation of being someone that could win Bermuda another medal. We have won one in the Montreal Olympics, I think 40 years ago. But um, going in as a favorite, I knew it was possible to do the gold and also be the first woman to win a medal. So I definitely had all of that on, on my back going into the race. So to have achieved it, it feels like a massive relief. I think I feel relaxed for the first time in many years and just, yeah, so excited that I could achieve my personal lifelong sporting goal. And then also to do it for Bermuda and um, make the country so proud is, is really special. This was your
1: fourth Olympic Games and first gold medal. To what do you attribute that success? How did you manage to overcome some previous setbacks and go on and win the gold?
2: Yeah, I think it's just maturing as an athlete and getting better year after year, putting in the training and putting in the hard yards. Um, Of course, I've had many injuries, many ups and downs, but that's just part of the journey of being a professional athlete. I learned a lot in Rio. I actually went into that sort of as one of the outside favorites. But for me at the time where I was at in my career, it was just way too much of a moment for me. And I really struggled with sort of some of the pressure and expectation. And so I learned a lot from that. And have just sort of steadily built getting more comfortable in the favorites group And that's definitely a skill you have to learn. And so I could go into this games pretty comfortable with being one of the favorites. And as I said, it's much easier to say that than to actually do that on race day on the one day of the year that it really matters. So yeah, it's definitely now just crazy for me.
1: A triathlon consists of a 1.5-kilometer swim, a 40-kilometer bicycle ride, and a 10-kilometer run. Now, you weren't in first during the swimming and biking portions, but you pulled ahead during the run and ultimately won the entire race by a landslide. How did you manage to pull that off?
2: Yeah, so with the swim and the bike, I was a little bit more strategic. But yes, it was great to execute a good swim and get into that front group of the bike And that just really set my race up nicely. And then, yeah, got onto the run. I was feeling great. And I I raced against those women pretty regularly throughout the year. So I know their strengths and weaknesses. So I knew if I took the run out hard to try to just establish a lead, that that would be my best tactic. And so I did. And luckily, I felt pretty good and could hold on. And and I definitely did not think I would win by that much. But that was also kind of nice because I could really enjoy my moment, like going down the finishing chute. And just try to soak it all in.
1: You represent the nation of Bermuda, and now it is the least populated nation to ever win a gold medal. Throughout your time as a professional athlete, I am wondering how has representing such a small country made your experience different from athletes who represent larger countries?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very different. If I just think about like, you know, the the usual races I attend on the World Triathlon Circuit, I'm often the only Bermudian racing and then I'm up against countries like the United States or Great Britain that are have fully funded. They have coaches there. They have a mechanic. They have a physio. There's five or six of them in the race. They have this whole team atmosphere and, you know, everything is taken care of. And for me, for a long time, I, I was going to these races by myself and just trying to like, manage everything that needs to be done at a race kind of by myself and going to all these foreign countries. And it was definitely overwhelming, quite a lot to deal with. But yeah, at the same time, I have a lot more, I guess, freedom and flexibility to pick and choose what races I want to do, where I want to train. Now it's it's great because I'm in a position where I have achieved success. I have some great sponsors. So Yes, I might be the only person at these races from Bermuda, but I feel like I can equally compete with them now. Yeah. And I guess it's also special, like I'm always flying the flag for Bermuda. So I think if I win for myself, it's a win, big win for my country and everyone gets really excited and I get really like massive support. So, yeah, that makes it pretty special and a lot more personal, I would say.
1: While you represent Bermuda, you have been a Coloradan for quite a while. You graduated from CU Boulder with a degree in sociology in 2013 and continue to train here for six months out of the year. The state is pretty well known for having a fit, active mindset. So really, it's no surprise that Colorado provided the third highest number of Olympic athletes of any U.S. state. How does living in a place with such an active lifestyle impact you as an athlete?
2: I love being in Colorado. So I'm in Boulder where like every triathlete is. There's so many of us there, which I quite like in the way that it's like, it's normal. It's normal to be a triathlete. It's actually normal to be a world champion. Like, you know, it's just like every other day, oh, that person's won Olympic medal. Yep. So is that person. But yeah, the training is fantastic. I mean, it's a beautiful town. Yeah. Everyone is quite outdoorsy and sporty and It's nice. I like that I can do triathlon there and train, but also have like a little bit of a life removed from triathlon. Yeah, that's kind of where I spend most of the year training. And then the other part of the year, I'm married to a South African. So we spend some time there. And then when we're not there, we're in Bermuda. But Boulder is definitely a very special place to me. And I owe a lot of my sporting success to being there and the athletes that I've been surrounded by and the coaches that I've had there. And yeah, it's just a really fantastic place.
1: Just lastly, I asked you earlier what this moment felt like for you. What does this moment feel like for Bermuda?
2: Oh, man, I think for Bermuda, I mean, it's just going crazy there right now. I think everyone is so proud. That's what I meant when I touched on it. It's like personal, not just me personal, but I think for every Bermudian was invested in me racing yesterday. And so I think everyone is just like beaming and really excited. And I guess for me, I also hope that it inspires a lot of the youth in Bermuda to know that, yes, we're from a small island, but that doesn't mean it's not possible to compete on the world stage. Really, it's just really cool that they're so proud and excited for the win yesterday.
1: Well, now that you have achieved, you know, what for many is the ultimate Olympic goal, what's next for you? Yes. Well, that that's a good question. I think a lot of things are up in the air now,
2: but yes, I'm scheduled to fly back to Colorado and I have quite a few races planned for the rest of the year, but I need to sort of assess my options and uh, make a trip home to Bermuda. But it all makes it a little bit more difficult now in this COVID world. But yes, I should be back in Colorado on Friday and hopefully some more racing for the rest of the year.
1: Flora Duffy, Olympic gold medalist for the nation of Bermuda, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us and congratulations. Thank you.
3: This Sunday marks the beginning of Colorado's new year-long state historian term. Nikki Gonzalez, a history professor and vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University, is succeeding historian and author Dwayne Vandenbush.
1: Gonzalez also serves on the governor's advisory board for renaming geographical locations. She's the first Latino person to take the position since it was created in 1924. And Gonzalez joins us now to talk about her work as a historian and her goals for the upcoming year. Nikki, welcome to Colorado Edition.
4: Thanks, Erin, for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Now, you grew up
1: in Denver, and you specialize in the history of the American West. How did your upbringing contribute to your curiosity for American Western history?
4: So I think my upbringing absolutely shaped my curiosity about history in general, not just the West. I grew up with my dad and my grandfather would talk history all the time. And Usually that was about political history, you know, they were both Bobby Kennedy fans. And so I heard a lot of, if only Bobby had lived stories growing up. My grandfather, Grandpa Stanley, he was in World War II. So I was always very interested in World War II. And the books that I read as a young kid were always biographies of of historical figures who had overcome, you know, challenges in their lives. And I, I just, from a very early age, I was really in tune with those stories And then it just kind of blossomed from there.
1: And now you focus on race relations and social and political movements in your scholarship. Sounds like that was shaped in part by your childhood conversations, but why do you feel this is important to focus on, especially here in Colorado?
4: So I think, you know, all history kind of instructs us and grounds us and and helps us understand the current moment. And I especially think at this moment in time, the history of race relations in this country, and you know, and specifically in, in the history of the American West, really helps inform us about current, contemporary racial race issues that are at the surface right now. You know, people like to say we're in this moment of racial reckoning. You know, with our with our past. And I think absolutely we need to look at the, the history of race relations in this country to, to understand where we are and also to have that understanding, which will help us have conversations that we really need to have as a society. Right, yeah, you are coming into this role at a
1: really interesting time because it feels like history is really at the forefront of our collective conversations you know, as a nation and as a state and especially whose history it is that we're talking about.
4: Yes, absolutely. And and that's really important that we that we especially in this moment pay attention to those histories that haven't been part of the dominant narrative and to to give them some airtime and to to honor those those individuals and those communities. History is
1: wide reaching, but it is also something that can be deeply personal. How has your own family history appeared in your work over the years?
4: I would say that as I've gotten, as I got older, you know, as I went to college and, and, and beyond graduate school and even in my career now, I would say that my my research agenda, my interests, my commitments are all very much shaped by kind of a search for my own history, my my family's history, and also to honor honor that history. I come from a long line of people who have been working class, you know, my family very active in the coal mines in Colorado, in the beet fields in northern Colorado, and so very hardworking people, which, and I never saw those those histories in any sort of history class or book until college, And, and I took a history of the American West, which just opened things up for me. And another project, which is very dear to my heart, is an oral history project that I have about Chicano-Vietnam veterans. And that grew out of an interest to really understand a very formative experience in my dad's life, which he is a he was a Marine in Vietnam. And still to this day, he doesn't really like to talk about things. He's starting to open up with my two boys, but he never really wanted to talk about it with me. And so my solution for getting out of better understanding of that experience was to talk to people who grew up in communities like his or his community itself, and to find out about how that experience shaped them and shaped their communities. So that's a project that's very dear to my heart.
1: And it has me wondering about the link between individual history and kind of this collective history.
4: Absolutely. I think that that link is very important. I talk to a lot of people about their histories, and and I'm always asking questions And, you know, there's this widely, I guess, belief, widely spread belief that, you know, oh, our history just doesn't really matter on an individual level. And I'm always, no, 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 it's part of a large, it's a piece of a larger puzzle. And and so I always try to encourage, especially youth, to explore their history, to talk to their elders, because I really believe that it grounds you in that larger narrative and makes you feel like you belong. And so I think that's an important thing to do as we mentioned earlier you are the first
1: Latino person to assume the role of Colorado state historian. What does that mean to you?
4: Yeah first all, I, I you know I'm so grateful to history Colorado for for making this opportunity possible for me and and second of all I think, that it means a lot. It's very personal for me. And the outpouring that I've received from the, the Latino community has been incredible. In fact, right before I logged on to this call, I received a phone call from a man who was in Boulder at the time of the, the bombings in 1973 with the Los este Boulder. And so he was telling me his story. And so I think it it means a lot to the community. Um, I've received some really nice messages from people that have said, you know, we've been waiting a long time for representation at this level in the, in the history world, and now our stories matter. And so I, I think, you know, it's a good opportunity for the Latino community, as well as other historically marginalized communities to, to have their voices be heard. And I also think Come, You know, I remember as a kid looking up to people who who looked like me and the importance of being a role model as well. So what are your goals for your your long term? I have two kind of overarching goals and one I already talked a lot about, which is to promote and to really honor the historical contributions of historically marginalized communities to the history of Colorado, to highlight those in whatever way I can, whether it be through you know, exhibits, um, interpretations of exhibits, events, and so forth. And then two is to engage the youth. So I I've worked with youth. um, I work with college age kids now, but I've worked with youth, you know, since high school, I've always, you know, been gravitated and worked with youth programs. And I've found that through encouraging kids to explore their family history, it really empowers them. And it can be, you know, a way to encourage them to continue their education and to to, to make good decisions in their life. I think that's really important. And so so working with youth, engaging them in some intergenerational conversations is another goal. And, and History Colorado already offers free memberships for, for all fourth graders in the state. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of tag along with that program a little bit. You
1: officially assume the role of state historian on Colorado Day, August 1st. And I just Think of that as a day for even non-historians to celebrate Colorado and Colorado statehood. I'm wondering what does Colorado Day mean to you?
4: Colorado Day, since I've been working with this, with History Colorado for the past few years, has really come to mean just a celebration, a time for community. And, you know, yes, our, our history has been very bumpy. <laughs> you know, uh, this history of race in this state has been very violent at times. And so Colorado Day is an opportunity for us to come together as a community and to honor each other and to be curious about one another's history. So that's what it's come
0: to mean for me.
1: Nikki Gonzalez is a history professor and vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University. And she's Colorado's new state historian. Nikki, thank you so much for talking with us.
4: Oh, no, thank you, Erin. I appreciate it.
3: That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we explore how the Americans with Disabilities Act has shaped accessibility across our region, especially as it relates to accessing the great outdoors. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
1: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
3: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.